are listening to Ideas on Trapped with Toby Lawson. Welcome to another episode of Ideas on Trapped, and my guest today is Ricardo Hausman, who is a professor of economic development at Harvard University. He's a former director of Harvard Center for International Development and is currently the director of the Center's Growth Lab. Ricardo pioneered an approach of looking at economic development called economic complexity. My brief synopsis of the central idea is that an economy only grows and develops by learning to do many things by expanding its productive capabilities. I start by asking Ricardo what we can learn, particularly from the East Asia experience and what has happened in economic development over the last few decades. Thank you for always listening to the show and I hope you enjoy this one. You've been one of the most important thinkers in economic development throughout my adult life. So it's a pleasure to speak to you. Pleasure to be with you, Toby. From around 1990, when the results of the economic trajectory of East Asia became apparent, so many policy propositions have been developed by scholars. But in your opinion, what do you think has been the most important lesson from that East Asian growth episode? I think the general experience of development is is really that development is about the growth of productive capabilities in a society. It's what a society is capable of doing. And what a society is capable of doing depends a little bit on what are the tools and machines it has available to do things and what are the recipes and formulas and routines and protocols it's aware of, but it's mostly about what is the know-how that its people have. And this idea of know-how is not just, uh, you know, low and high. It's mostly how different is what each member of society knows, because if everybody knows a lot of the same thing, the whole doesn't know much more than each individual. But if each individual knows different, then the whole can know a lot, even if each individual doesn't know that much. So this division of know-how in society allows for individuals to specialize and society to diversify. That a society is able to do more because its individuals know different. I am originally from Venezuela, and you're Nigerian. And we all think that we are rich because we have oil. And then something bad happened to explain why, given that we're rich, uh, we're not so rich, but we're rich because we have oil. A society is rich not because of what it has, but because of what it knows how to do. And the growth and development of a society is the growth and development of what it knows how to do well. That's the core of things. And so if you ask about East Asia, well, they started in agriculture, they moved to garments, then they moved to textiles, then they moved to electronics. Then they move to cars, then they move to chemicals and ships and so on. So if you look at what they have been good at, that is something that has been very rapidly changing. They become good at more things and they become sufficiently good at those things that they can sell them outside of their country. And if you look at their export baskets, they have been evolving dramatically in the directions I just mentioned. 
If you look at the export basket of Nigeria or the export basket of Venezuela, the only thing you'll find there is oil. But when you look at the amount of oil we're talking about, it's really peanuts. It's really mm -hmm. peanuts. So it's not that we have a lot of oil. It's that it's the only game in town. You know, Nigeria is a society of about 200 million people. Produces about 2 million barrels of oil a day. That's like a one hundredth of a barrel of oil per capita. That's one hundredth of $60. That's 60 cents. That's not much money that's coming out of there, right? So it's not that you have a lot of oil. It's that it's the only game in town. And that's a reflection of how little the country has got at more things, with the possible exception of Nollywood. In fairness to Nigeria, I wouldn't just say Nollywood. Sectors like telecommunications have been booming in the last 20 years. But looking yeah, broadly... One second, one second, one second. That has allowed Nigerians to call each other. But that opens an enormous opportunity now. Because one of the things that COVID has taught us is that many things that we used to do in the office, we can do from home. But anything that can be done from home can be done from abroad. So there are many, many tasks that are currently done in rich countries, but that could be done by Zoom in poor countries, in less developed countries. And that opens up new avenues for diversification. It will open up, you know, the possibility to participate in value chains that were unthinkable before, because people thought that, you know, the people doing those tasks had to live there. And now we know that they don't have to live there. So, you know, one message for all the youth in Nigeria is that there's plenty of work in platforms like Upwork and other such platforms where you can find jobs to do on the web. And that's thanks to the fact that you have, you know, ICT, information communication technology that has diffused. But so far, that diffusion has not changed what Nigeria is able to sell abroad. And that's, I think, where we have to aim. Mm -hmm. Finding forms of livelihood for Nigerians in Nigeria by selling to people in the rest of the world. Looking at your economic complexity approach to development from your writings and the writings of other scholars in that school, a society that knows how to do many things will grow rich. But how do we square that with the works of people like Robert Wade, who stressed the importance of manufacturing and industrialization in achieving growth and development. How should policymakers think about the knowledge we are getting from the sub-discipline of economic development? Manufacturing was a very, very important stepping stone for many of the societies that became rich. It was a very important stepping stone because manufacturing required relatively low-skilled labor. So it was easy to take people out of agriculture with little education, put them in manufacturing, and manufacturing was you know, generating much higher levels of productivity than agriculture at the time, and the levels of productivity manufacturing were growing. So for East Asia, this movement of people from agriculture to manufacturing was a very important stepping stone in the process of development. Some people think that manufacturing has become less unskilled labor intensive. It has become more skill intensive and more capital intensive. So it doesn't necessarily generate as many jobs as before. And, and there aren't that many sort of like entry level jobs as, as before. But I think they're still there. 
they're still there. So I think that, you know, a prosperous Nigeria would have much more manufacturing than it has today. And creating the ecosystem for that manufacturing to happen is very important. And for that, I think that creating the ecosystem means what? Means that you need spaces where people can locate their factories, say, so that workers can go in and out efficiently and not spend two hours going there and two hours going back home. That the materials can get in and out. That you're relatively close to an efficient port where you can bring materials from the rest of the world or send materials to the rest of the world. That you can participate in global value chain so that you give up on this idea that everything that you want to manufacture has to be manufactured with locally available raw materials, which is one of the most destructive ideas that is very popular in Africa. That you want to, as you say, um, what's the term that you use there? Um, uh, beneficiate beneficiate your raw materials locally and that that's sort of like the angle of development. We can elaborate, but that's a very, very dangerous and counterproductive idea. So you would need, you know, a place that has electricity, water, security. So creating those spaces where manufacturing can thrive definitely is a task going forward. And I would, I would put the less attention to some of the things that goes by the old uh, industrial policy name and more attention to just um, making sure that you create spaces where Nigerian manufacturing can be very, very productive. Let's talk a bit about the political economy of this. What exactly is the role of the state? Because what mostly obtains in countries like Nigeria and the rest is heavy state involvement in trying to industrialize and doing industrial policy, allocate resources, and credit, and there isn't much emphasis on the role of the private sector and even the market. So how important is the state in this process, and what exactly is the role of the state in nurturing a growing economy? So I think that the, the role of the state is huge, but it has to be smart. It has to be complementary. It has to enhance the possibilities of the rest of society and not substitute the possibilities of the rest of society. So let me give you an example. Every technology you can imagine is a combination of some things that you can buy in the market and some things that cannot be purchased in the market, that either they are provided by the state or they're not provided. So, you know, there is a market for cars and you can go out and buy a car, different kinds of cars. There's no market for roads or for traffic lights or for uh, driving rules or for traffic police. So a car is a private good. It exists in a universe full of public goods. If the state does not provide the roads, the cars are not very useful, right? That's what I mean by the state complementing the rest of society. So society can organize some things and not others. So it's very important that the state be very good at providing the things that cannot be provided by markets. And those are quite a few. So, for example, electricity penetration in Nigeria is still very low and remains a, a very, very significant obstacle to progress in spite of massive investments in that area. So electricity, you know, an efficient port system, an efficient road system, an efficient urban transportation system, public education, you know, uh, public health. There's so many, so many tasks. Now, 
in luring things that can be done by markets, there's also a lot that can be done. Let me get, tell you a little bit of a secret of the US success. If you look at Silicon Valley, for example, well, let's look first at the US as a whole. US as a whole, 14% of the population of the US is foreign born. But if you look at the entrepreneurs in the US, 29% are foreign born. So the foreign born represent, you know, double the share of the entrepreneurs than they represent as a share of the population. If you look in Silicon Valley, and everybody's trying to imitate Silicon Valley, 54% of the science, technology, engineering, and math workers of Silicon Valley, the STEM workers, 54% are foreign born. And the other 46% were not born in California, even though California is a state that has 40 million people. So the secret of Silicon Valley is not that they have fantastic school systems and fantastic universities and so on and so forth. It is really that they're able to attract global talent. And one of the things that Africa has done in general is that it has closed itself to the attraction of foreign talent. In many countries, it's very hard to get a visa to become a permanent resident or work permit. There is no path to citizenship. There are restrictions in how many foreigners a firm can hire, etc., etc. So, you know, in Africa, many countries cannot stop their citizens from going and working abroad, but the countries are very effective in preventing foreigners to come in, except at the very low end. So one of the things that you want to think about in order to industrialize and to get into other things is to be able to attract talent, global talent, that is capable of enhancing the capabilities you have. There's no shame in doing that. That's how it's being done in the, in the rich countries. You know, everybody wants to become Singapore, but they don't know that Singapore is 45% foreign born. Singapore is what it is because it's able to attract global talent. So, you know, a lot of the improvements in the South African financial system is because they were able to attract all the Zimbabweans that were leaving Mugabe and get jobs. You know, all the educated Zimbabweans moved to South Africa and that was very good for South Africa. So there's a lot in terms of attracting new know-how that can be done by trying to attract foreign talent. Another thing that you can do is to leverage your diaspora. Most African countries have a very significant diaspora. Much of that diaspora is in richer countries, more developed countries, and that diaspora is being exposed to new ways of doing business, to new industries, to new ideas. They can become a very, very important source of diversification of, of progress. That has been documented by Annalisa Xenian for the case of Taiwan, for the case of India, for the case of, of Israel, for, for many instances in which diasporas were very important in transforming the opportunities of the country. So you want to leverage all of these things that can allow society to become more productive, more capable, more able to do more things, and you know, the role of the government is, in some sense, not to prevent that from happening, to complement that with all the things that cannot be organized through markets, uh, through private firms. And then, you know, maybe here and there, there's an additional space for, you know, coaxing things. You know, just if there were good industrial zones, well connected by infrastructure to the ports, well supplied by electricity and water, well connected to places where workers live through an urban transport system and so on. I'm sure that a lot of people would locate to do manufacturing in Nigeria. 
I want to get more from your answer by extending that question to state capacity. So many scholars have argued that state capacity is even the secret sauce, so to speak, of the success of East Asia, including China. And you get the impression that a state has to have fully formed capacity to deliver on so many things before it can then nurture growth and development. But you have argued in one of your lectures that I just saw that there is a co-evolution that happens between the state and the economy in terms of capabilities. So how does this co-evolution work in practice as opposed to the standard view of a fully formed capable state? Some people would like to say, well, you know, first you have to have a capable state and then you can have development. But until you get a capable state, you cannot get development. So focus on getting a capable state. But then you ask yourself the question, and how is that capable state going to rise? What's going to fund that capable state if it's not a society that is able to pay the taxes and so on to feed that capable state? So, so in fact, what you end up having is a society that needs to develop in order to feed a more capable state and a more capable state that is able to help society continue its development process. So at every point in time, you have states of very different capacities. And as a consequence, societies of a certain level of capacity consistent with that capacity of the state. So what you end up having is the more society develops, the more resources can be put available to the state for it to do its thing. And the more the state does its thing, the more the society can develop. So these things are growing at the same time or they're growing together. But a very important, important question that you have to ask yourself when you're thinking about the state, you're thinking about the Nigerian state. Now, what does it mean to be Nigerian? Who is Nigerian? Who is included in being Nigerian? When the state acts on behalf of Nigerians, it acts on behalf of whom? Does it act on behalf of the Hausa? Does it act on behalf of the Yoruba? Does it act on behalf of the Igbo? What does it mean to be Igbo and Nigerian or Hausa and Nigerian? How many things do you want to be decided in Abuja? And how many things do you want to have decided at the different uh, states, state government? So you have a relatively federal structure in Nigeria. Is that because you think that people have stronger regional identities than they have for a national identity? When you talk about Japan or you talk about Korea, you're talking about societies that are internally very homogeneous. A Japanese person is somebody who speaks Japanese. A Korean person is somebody who speaks Korean. How many languages are spoken in Nigeria? About 500. So obviously it's not having a state, it's somebody's state. Whose state is it? So I think one of the things that is a challenge is the construction of a Nigerian identity that can support the state, right? Because the state is underpinned by a certain sense of us. The state is our state, it is done for us. It is how we do things collectively. And it's very important to you know, clarify what do we mean by that we? Who is inside the we? Who's not inside the we? Who is us? Who's not us? 
And those things are what makes often, you know, state development difficult because, you know, if some people think that the state is going to be favoring some other group, then you would rather have a weak state than a state controlled by somebody who's not you. And those things make statecraft harder. I mean, the evolution of powers from the center is one of the conversations that Nigeria is having right now, especially in the light of the recent insecurity issues and the poverty. We'll see how that works. But let me quickly pick up on another theme. Politicians usually valorize the role of small businesses in an economy. But in one of your essays that has made a very big impression on me, you took a different approach by looking at the role of big businesses in nurturing development and enrichment. Can you expatiate a bit on the role of big businesses in an economy? So I think when you have a very developed society, you tend to have you know, markets for every possible input you want. You want electricity, somebody sells electricity. You want to photocopy or you want to print uh, stuff, there is a store that prints stuff for you. You want uh, to design a campaign ad, you know, a television ad or a, or a cover. You know, there's some people that design that. So you can start a business and buy everything else from the stuff that people produce around you, right? So all of your possible inputs are things that other firms can do for you. So you can start small and buy everything you need from everybody else. When you start in a less developed society, many of those things that you wish you could buy from everybody else are just not there. And maybe you have to self-provide your own electricity. Maybe you'll have to print your own stuff. Maybe you'll have to design your own covers. Maybe you'll have to have all of these things done inside the company because there are no reliable suppliers outside the company. So as a consequence, you know, modern firms tend to start bigger in less developed countries than in more developed countries. In more developed countries, you can just rely on other people doing stuff for you. As a consequence, you know, existing corporations are in some sense organizations that have developed the capacity to provide internally things that markets cannot do for them. So once they exist, they have typically financial capital, they have a managerial capital, they have a reputational capital that allows them to make it much easier for them to start a new line of business. You know, the Silicon Valley way to start a new line of business is that you create a startup. A startup is very easy to create in Silicon Valley or in a very advanced place because everything that the startup needs, it can buy out there. But in a place where you cannot buy everything out there, you cannot start that small. But a corporation, a conglomerate, if it were to decide to diversify into a new line of business, it could just reallocate some of its managers, it could reallocate some of its cash flows, it could, because of its reputation, it could do joint ventures with other companies, maybe some foreign company or something that can bring in some technology. And they can do things as a group that a startup cannot do. So that's why I, I wrote this piece saying, you know, conglomerates can be and were, in the case of Japan and Korea, a fundamental story of the growth process. Japan and Korea diversified because Toyota, Mitsubishi, Daewoo, Samsung diversified internally as conglomerates. 
right? It's not that just more companies appear there. It's that those companies diversified. So, so I think that it's an important avenue for growth that a country should consider. But, but conglomerates can come, you know, can be a force for good or they can be a force for bad. The conglomerates can just become, you know, monopolist in one industry, move to the next industry and become a monopolist there, move to the next industry and become a monopolist there, and then suddenly become a huge barrier to entry for other people. It's very important that the conglomerates that do well, and this was the case of Japan and Korea, they are exporters. You tolerate conglomerates because they are exporters. A conglomerate that only sells domestically it's like one of the local football teams. A conglomerate that exports is like the, the national team. It's like the one that's playing at the World Cup. It's facing massive competition from other companies in other countries. So it deserves all the support of society. But a conglomerate that only sells domestically, you know, it has the danger of just becoming the local monopolist and stifling everybody else from competing against them. So conglomerates can be a stepping stone can be an avenue for growth, but they have to be good conglomerates. Let's talk about trade. And I'll set the scenario this way. A little over a year ago, about a year and a half ago, Nigeria closed its borders to all forms of trade. The justification was that the country is far too much of a dumping ground, especially for agricultural products, which we can actually produce locally. There were exchange measures to prevent imports of some of these products. And the result, some would argue, as they argued against the move at the time, has been disastrous. Food inflation is through the roof. People became poorer. People are having to spend more on food than anything else for vulnerable households. But you still hear people, either policymakers or even intellectuals, say that these are necessary sacrifices that developing countries have to make in order to industrialize. You have people like Hajun Chan who provide intellectual guidance for this view and that the West, in its own process of industrialization, went through much of the same thing. As a scholar who has also done a lot of work on trade, for a poor developing country, what is the right way to think about trade policy? Okay, first of all, let's separate trade from just macroeconomic mismanagement. Because a lot of the problem of Nigeria comes not from trade mismanagement, but from the trade consequences of macroeconomic mismanagement. You have exchange controls, dual exchange rate regimes, etc. That's not because you want to have an industrial policy. That's because you have messed up your macro policies. That is, you have a government that has a deficit that is insufficiently financed, so it has to print money to finance it. As it prints the money, the dollar goes through the roof. The Naira tanks, right? And then the government doesn't like that. And it wants to say that, you know, it's running out of foreign exchange. So it puts exchange controls. It tries to limit people's access to dollars and so on. And in that context, it creates an environment where it's very hard for companies to get tools 
and machines from abroad, it's very hard for them to get raw materials, intermediate inputs, spare parts from abroad, and it just makes them extremely unproductive. And as a consequence, they have uncompetitive products that they cannot sell anywhere else but in Nigeria through enormous protection. Now, trying to do things without importing the tools, the raw materials, the intermediate inputs, the spare parts, is just trying to do things in a very, very difficult way. It's trying to, to you know, as my father likes to say, why make things difficult if you can make them impossible? The way the world works is that you don't have to make everything yourself. You just have to do some steps that add value to the things that, uh, that you're going to put together. I remember having a conversation with Governor Fasola in Lagos, and he's saying, you know, we want to have a, a furniture industry. So we want to prohibit the imports of foreign wood for furniture. We want it done with Nigerian wood. And I said, you know, you're the governor of Lagos. Not all furniture has to be made out of wood. It could be made out of metals. It could be made out of plastics. It could be made out of other materials, right? And all of the materials you want for a furniture industry are as far as the Lagos port. So if you want a furniture industry, by all means, have a furniture industry, but don't dump on the furniture industry the responsibility of only making furniture by buying inputs in Nigeria, because that's a recipe for disaster. If for some reason your inputs you couldn't buy in Nigeria for X or Y, or you could buy some inputs and not the others, like you can buy two legs of the chair, but not the other two legs, well, then that's not a chair. So Focus on making sure that your units of production have what it takes for them to succeed. And that often implies access to the raw materials, the intermediate inputs, the tools, the spare parts that you know, Nigeria doesn't currently make. But that's fine. That's how East Asia did it. If you look at, you know, they started exporting garments. They weren't making the textiles and they weren't making the the fibers, and they weren't making the cotton. They started cutting and sewing, and then they moved from cutting and sewing to designing the shirts and so on. Then they moved to making the textiles. Then they moved to maybe making the artificial threads that went into new forms of textiles. And they did that gradually. But they did not start by closing themselves off from all the inputs that the world produces and that you could use to make stuff in Nigeria. So I would say the problem in Nigeria is that you have a fiscal problem that is being solved by printing too much money. That generates an exchange rate mess. That exchange rate mess creates an environment that makes it very difficult for companies to operate. And in that process, it generates an overvalued exchange rate, which makes manufacturing artificially uncompetitive. And you get less of it, not more of it. You get less of it because you want you know, you're constraining the exchange rate at which they could be exporting, and you're constraining their access to raw materials and intermediate inputs. So if anything, you're hurting the chances for growth, not helping them. Part of the reasons ascribed to countries like Nigeria finding it impossible to industrialize or even diversify their sources of income is the resource cost hypothesis. First of all, is is this a real thing? Like, uh, are, are countries like 
Venezuela and Nigeria poor because of the so-called Dutch disease? And secondly, how do countries that are also resource-rich, like Norway and Australia, who are rich and highly developed, how did they manage to break out of the resource costs? So there are different interpretations of, of the resource curse. When the Dutch disease was coined, it was coined because there was a boom in the Netherlands of uh, natural gas exports. And those natural gas exports meant that they were exporting a lot, generating a lot of foreign exchange, and their local currency strengthened. And that strengthening of the local currency made the rest of the economy uncompetitive. So if that were the problem, then that would have been a problem in 2007 in Nigeria when the price of oil reached $140 a barrel. But then it goes away as a problem after 2014 when the price of oil went under $40, right? So that's no longer the problem, right? I mean, Nigeria's exports of oil are coming down. Oil production is stagnant. Domestic oil consumption is up. So oil exports are going nowhere. And the price of oil is now lower than it was 10 years ago. Okay, so excess of foreign exchange that you know, used to be called the Dutch disease is no longer the problem. I wrote a paper with my colleague Roberto Rigobon saying that the problem may not be just how much foreign exchange you know, the oil makes, but just that the fact that it's a very volatile amount, you know, that it goes up in some years, down in other years. So the exchange rate as a consequence is very unstable and unpredictable. And it makes business in the country very risky because you don't know what is the exchange rate that you're going to face. And that's not so much because you have a lot of oil, it's just because oil income is very volatile. So that's a separate problem. And that one typically has to be addressed by having some mechanism that stabilizes government finances. So you have to run a government that has unstable income and wants to have stable spending programs. So you want kids to be able to go to school every year, you want roads cleaned and repaired every year, you want to have the hospitals open every year, you want the police services every year, but your income is going up and down. How do you do that? That's a problem of stabilizing the government accounts. And that's a different kind of problem of living with oil. A third problem of living with oil is something that they call rent seeking. <clears throat> that if all the money is in the government, then people who are very entrepreneurial, instead of setting up businesses, may dedicate themselves to trying to grab the money that the government has. And so it distorts the incentives of society from you know, doing things that are productive to doing things that are unproductive but profitable in just trying to seek the rents that the state has. I honestly don't think that that's that big of a problem in Nigeria, given how small our oil revenues vis-a-vis -vis the size of, of the society. So I, I think uh, the big puzzle in Nigeria is why the country has not diversified more, given how little oil it has. You know, in, in a country like Kuwait or in a country like um, the United Arab Emirates, Abu Dhabi, you know, you can ask yourself a question, well, why would they diversify if they have so much foreign exchange that they don't know what to do with it? The question in Nigeria is why have you not diversified in spite of the fact that oil is generating so little revenue these days. Mm. 
I'll just ask you a few off-the-cuff questions. What is your opinion on, on the so-called Washington Consensus? Has it failed in Africa, Latin America? Is it misunderstood? Do developing countries need to think beyond macroeconomic stability and all the other recipes proposed by the IMF? What, what's the way to think about this? Okay, so the Washington Consensus is a term that was coined by John Williamson, who just passed away a week or two ago. Yeah. In a seminar in 1989 or 1990, I think it was, 1990, a seminar that was called Latin American Adjustment, How Much Has Happened? So it was really a Latin American question. Latin America was in a debt crisis. The debt crisis was associated with the fact that during the oil boom of the 1970s, it had borrowed too much money. Then it was unable to pay that money. And it was mired in, in a debt crisis. And the question is, how do you get out of there? And John Williamson said, there are these 10 things that uh, sort of like Washington institutions agree would be good to sort of like get out of the Latin American debt crisis. But then these 10 things became like the 10 commandments uh, <laughs> you know, that, that you can take them to Eastern Europe, you can take them to Sub-Saharan Africa, you can take them to North Africa and the Middle East. You take them out of context and they're supposed to work marvels no matter what. It's, it's, it, 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 in my mind, policies have to be solutions to problems. Tell me the problem. Let's design a solution. It's not, here are 10 solutions. You haven't told me what the problem is. <laughs> so, so I think that policies have to be problem-driven and not solution-driven. And the Washington consensus is a set of solutions without a problem. So in, in my mind, it ended up creating an environment in which people stopped thinking about what are the policies that they need to adopt and just as to whether they have or haven't adopted the 10 policies in the list. Even if those 10 policies in the list wouldn't solve the problem that we're trying to solve because you, know, you haven't even asked the question, what is the problem you're trying to solve? So that's why with my colleagues, uh, Andres Velasco and Danny Roderick, we uh, developed this idea of growth diagnostics. That the first thing you have to do is to try to understand what the problem is. And once you have a clear idea of what the nature of the problem is, then let's explore the solution space. And most likely, you're not going to end in the Washington consensus because you know it will be a coincidence that you do. So from a certain point of view, the worst thing that was delivered by the Washington consensus is that it encouraged people to stop thinking of what the right policies are and just assuming that they haven't implemented a list of policies that may not be the right ones. You've also been in government in Venezuela. So I'll ask you, what do you think holds up the use of knowledge by policymakers? Uh, or should I say, what prevents the right diagnosis of the problems that some poor countries have? Because what you find is that, and Nigeria is also a good example of this, what you find is that a lot of these countries, even though different administrations, different political actors, 
they come into power and repeat the same policies that have been tried in the past and failed. So what prevents the diffusion of knowledge at governmental level? Well, I mean, I think that uh, people do act on the basis of how they see the world, on the ideas that they have in their heads, and on the interpretations they make of the world. So ideas can change the world if they change how people think about the world, how people interpret the world, how, how those ideas help them to think how to act on the world. And I'm an optimist in the sense that I've tried to develop ideas, diffuse ideas, train people, educate people, work with governments, try to help them think through the issues that they face. That's why you know, I created the Growth Lab. The Growth Lab is a group of about 50 people. And we, we not only do fundamental research on issues of economic development and growth, but we also work with countries around the world trying to help them think through these these issues. And we also you know, teach and educate and, and so on. So I think uh, ideas have a complicated way of diffusing. I think uh, a lot of the problems in the world are related to the diffusion of and the popularity of some bad ideas. And if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be in the business of trying to produce new ideas, diffuse good ideas and so on, or what I think are good ideas. So, for example, I think that the Washington consensus has been pretty much superseded by the idea that policies have to be solutions to, to problems and not solutions in search of a problem. And that you don't start by assuming that you know what the solution is before you clarify what the nature of the problem is. And I think those ideas have permeated even, you know, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and so on, with difficulty because the alternative paradigm is, is still popular. I mean, this whole idea of best practices very dangerous idea. It supposes that people know how to do things, and like there's the right, the right way to do things, which presumes something like you know there is the perfect suit, and you know mm. there's no such thing as a perfect suit. There's only a perfectly tailored suit, and everybody has a different body, so you have to tailor the suit differently. And there's a lot of detail in the tailoring. So one thing is, how do you diffuse better ideas? And the other thing is, is it a problem of politicians not wanting to know because the ideas they have are an expression more of their interests than of their knowledge? So like they like the idea because it advances their interests? Or is it just that they are they're wrong or they, they have you know, the wrong view of the world? And, you know, there's a big debate on whether it's interests or whether it's ideas, uh, the nature of the problem. I'm an optimist in the sense that I think that a lot of the things that happen in the world can be fixed by improving the ideas with which people see the world, analyze the world, interpret the world, think about the world. And that's why I'm in the business of, you know, research and, and teaching, uh, you know, researching better ideas and teaching about them. And by the way, Nigeria is one of the countries that sends more people to our executive education courses at the Harvard Kennedy School. And there's a, there's a huge community of people who have had some connection with the Harvard Kennedy School in Nigeria. And, you know, these are the ideas that we teach. So I'm hoping that, uh, you know, the reason why you have a podcast the reason why you are trying to promote these discussions is because you also believe that uh, the nature of the ideas with which people think the world is important for progress. That's why you do what you do.
Thank you very much, Professor Ricardo Osman. It's been fantastic talking to you. It's been great talking to you. All the best. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast vendors. That may be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the rest. Don't forget to rate us on your platform. It helps others find the show. Or you can just listen or download on our website, www.ideasontrap.com. Thank you.